This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I'm sorry that we don't have uh, more pleasant things to talk about. I'm sorry that the news cycle is what it is, but I think people have gotten maybe inured to that. I hope not numb to it. We have another shooting again in Tulsa once again. And of course, we're being assured that uh, there's not much that can be done about it, of course, except to uh, up armor all of our schools and now our hospitals, apparently bars. Country music festivals, uh, churches, synagogues, because we apparently continue to be the only country in the world that watches this, is shocked and horrified, and then decides, yeah, we can't really do anything about the guns. I don't think I'm being excessively cynical here. I think I'm just simply describing the political reality, although I would strongly urge readers to check out Mona Charon's piece about the myths about gun ownership, uh, walking through more than 20 recent incidents and pointing out how, in fact, if we did have laws, they could make a difference. The problem, of course, is not whether or not we could do something to reduce American carnage. It's whether or not we are willing to do something. So with that dark beginning, welcoming back to the podcast, Dr. Russell Moore, public theologian at Christianity Today, director of Christianity Today's Public Theology Project, also a fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, minister in residence at Emanuel Nashville, and author of Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. First of all, good morning, Dr. Moore. Good morning. The reason I wanted to talk to you is, is this extraordinary piece that you wrote last week uh, about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, where you said it's not a crisis, it's an apocalypse. And I, and I want to get to that in, in just a moment, but I'm, I'm just, I'm looking at the title of your book, Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. And, and I guess I, I wanted to ask you about that because we we live in a we live at a time in which there is so much fear. There are so many things to be afraid about. And I wonder what mm -hmm. what do you you know what are you thinking about as you as you watch this? What can you say to people who are experiencing losses that I know the word is overused, but unimaginable? Yeah, I remember the adage. You know, that God will not give you more than you can handle. But I have to say that when I watch what's happened in places like uh, Uvalde, I have to ask, you know, is this more than, than people should handle to you know, be a mother or a father and to bury your child who's been murdered in these terrible ways? So I, how do you face your fear without losing your soul? Well, the, the situation of the parents uh, themselves, that's unimaginable. It's unimaginable under any circumstances, and then you add to it. Uh, all of the confusion in Uvalde itself about uh, how this could have been prevented, whether it could have been prevented, uh, what the police did or did not do. Uh, it, it just adds to what is already uh, horror. And then if you look at the rest of uh, the rest of us just out here in America and you see the way that uh, that we tend to cope with these things, it's by just forgetting about it. Yeah. Um, and so you just look at that. Uh, Axios had a 
had a, a study uh, showing how quickly people just forget these things and move on. And, and they suggested it wasn't really callousness or numbness. It's that people are overwhelmed. Yeah. And so they, they just choose not to think about it. And then you add to it, most people really feel completely powerless here. Uh, they, they really don't believe whether whatever they think should be done in terms of guns or in terms of mental health or in terms of anything else. They don't really think anything is going to be done because they've seen Newtown and, and everything else since then. And a lot of people have just uh, have just given up to a kind of uh, cynicism, as you said. Well, there's also just the, you know, the, the psychological protective mechanism of if you can't deal with something, you'll 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 find a way not to not to not to think about it. But also what you're describing is is a loss of hope, which is also um, would, would be at the roots of, of a spiritual crisis if people lose hope. Yes. And, and you, you just look at everything over the last uh, several years uh, and how many times we thought COVID's gone, we can finally emerge from the stress of that. And then it just hits right back. Uh, everything else, it, it gets to the point where people have become really disillusioned. One of the things that's really helpful to me is to go back and reread C.S. Lewis's uh, essay, <laughs> Learning in Wartime, hmm. uh, where he's, he's talking to students uh, at Oxford uh, at the beginning of World War II, answering the question, why do you even bother when it seems that the world is falling apart? Hmm. And he says, you have a sense of powerlessness. You, you, you understand that, but you actually always do. We are always helpless and, and powerless. We're, we're going to die. This just intensifies it and you can see it. And it can lead you to a kind of disillusionment where you just give up. Or it can lead you to the right kind of disillusionment, which is a, a loss of the illusions uh, and, and a sense of dependence on God or dependence on one another. And so I'm hoping for that second kind of disillusionment right now. Well, I have to tell you, you know, as soon as we're done recording this podcast, I'm going to go look that up. I have all of the works of C.S. Lewis here, so I, I, I'm sure that I, I have it, and I feel the need to reread that. So let's talk about the other crisis, the shocking apocalyptic uh, crisis of the Southern Baptist Conference. You, for many years uh, until recently, served as the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, So, and you resigned last year. And so you have been involved in this uh, very deeply and very intimately. And when this new report came out about sexual abuse at the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, you wrote in Christianity Today that crisis was too small a word. It is an apocalypse. Give me your, your sense on this, because you wrote that you didn't expect to be surprised because you were very familiar with what had gone on. You thought you had a sense. And yet this report comes out. So tell me about what was in the report? I was the one who called for uh, an investigation as I left. And so I thought I will be the person who's the least surprised right. uh, by anything that they find. And I was literally mouth open, just in a state of disbelief and furious. And part of that is because for so many years, we had said we have a crisis, we have to address it. And many of the same people in the in this report, in this third party investigation, would say it's not a crisis. Don't call it a crisis. And now I'm looking at this and saying this is far worse than a crisis. I mean, this is an existential uh, apocalypse uh, taking place. If you think of it as a, an unveiling of what's really going on. So, for instance, so one of the things that the uh, third party uh, investigation revealed 
is that for many years, um, people have been calling for a database uh, to keep pastors who are predators or others who are predators at a church from just moving from one church to the other. Uh, and, and the next church doesn't have any idea uh, what's happened. And the executive committee would always say, we can't do that. It, it, we, we've studied it. There's no way to keep track of this. Now we find out they actually had a kind of a database, a, a shadow database for themselves. But it wasn't to protect uh, vulnerable people. It was to keep track of it all, I suppose, to protect their own uh, legal liability. And then when you just look at the conversations here about sexual abuse victims and survivors, the, the numbness and the uh, inhumanity of those conversations, it's, it's really shocking to the system. And of course, I was familiar with the way there are all of these stonewalling obstacles to, to any kind of reform and retaliation against people who uh, people who say that there uh, ought to be change, and it, um, it it really was it really was a shocking investigation, yeah. and many people are reeling right now. So you you wrote that you know as dark a view as you had of the the executive committee, the investigation uncovered a reality far more evil and systemic than I imagined it could be, uh, and and the conclusions were so massive uh, as to defy summation. But can we just get a sort of a sense of why you describe this as an apocalypse? It's not just the the scope of it, the number of people yeah. involved. It is the people who participated. And it goes so high into the conference and so far back to the beginnings. Okay, you tell me whether I'm wrong, but so many major seminal figures, revered figures are implicated in this. That's what makes this so really stunning. It, it really is. And it's uh, including some figures who were, there aren't many people who are respected across all of the different divisions uh, within uh, the denomination, but uh, in some cases, even they were implicated here. So it's just, it's just the report, it's about 200 pages long, and every page is astounding. For so long, I assumed that the problem here was that people just really didn't understand it, that right. they didn't understand that this was happening. But according to this report, at least this group of people did understand it. They did know uh, the extent of what was uh, what was happening and refused to do anything because they wanted to protect themselves. Okay. Did they want to protect themselves? I mean, did they ra they rationalize this? They wrap this in? They were, we're not protecting ourselves. We're protecting our witness. We're protecting people's faith. I mean, how did the process work that you would look at sex abuse, you would see victims, you understood that there were predators out there and you obvious, and you kept track of it. You wrote it down, you knew about it. And then you convinced yourself that the right thing to do was to do nothing. Well, it's, it's like in a lot of institutions in American life right now, there's the uh, rationalization that says, look at all the good we do. Uh, we send more missionaries uh, than anyone else. They're caring for people all over the world. And if we're, if we're not doing that, there are a lot of people who are going to be hurt. Yeah. So therefore, we need to protect the institution to make sure that we can continue to do that. And so when someone will come up and say, we have a serious problem here, a couple things happen. One of those things is to say, you're, you're going to hurt our missionaries. Uh, you're, you're going to hurt all the good work that we do. And the second thing is a, an implicit sort of threat of exile. It's um, if you... 
if you speak on this, you're not really one of us. And so that's what happened with many sexual abuse survivors. Uh, I, I experienced it a little bit as in my own way, but nothing compared to the way they did. Of uh, if you raise this, you're being disloyal, and and that means that you're out. And that's a big a sort of uh, not just a psychological factor, but a spiritual reality for a lot of us who were were raised. I mean, you know, I. I First sound I ever heard must have been my mother's heartbeat, but the second would have been Amazing Grace on a on a piano. I mean, those of us who have been in a Southern Baptist church context all of our lives, we we love it. We love those people. There's a spiritual dimension to it as well. So you you're right that we were told that they wanted to conserve the old time religion. What they wanted was to conquer their enemies and to make stained glass windows honoring themselves, no matter who was hurt along the way. So at some point. Does it all morph the the religious mission, the witness? Does it, it morphs into the pursuit of power? Yes, but what happens is we have sort of a mythology or had sort of a mythology in the Southern Baptist Convention of the conservative resurgence. And because there were some real leftward theological problems, a group of people who came in and said, no, we're going to reclaim authority of scripture and so forth. They're speaking to people who had genuine concerns about those things, including me. I'm very theologically conservative. But what we see now is that many of those figures, um, they, they were picking a, an issue that resonated for legitimate reasons with a lot of people, but they were actually in this for the most ruthless sort of power. And so you look back and you say there are some people who were called liberals and, and, uh, and sort of put out of, the, out of the circle that genuinely were. Uh, they, they, they were theological liberals that just didn't fit within a, a Southern Baptist doctrine. But there were a lot of other people who were sort of labeled that in a way in which they're now gone. I think about this all the time, a conversation you had, I think, with Adam Kinzinger mm -hmm. a year or so ago, where you were talking about this influence loop, that what you're told is you have to be at the table to change right. things, so play by the rules. And then when the moment comes when one has to say, uh, this is a problem, we need to fix it, then you're off, you're out of the table. And yeah. so it just, it just perpetuates the power, uh, the power struggle. Yeah, it is a loop of rationalization. So you've made reference to this, and, and this is a bit of inside baseball for people who are not Southern Baptists, but I think it's key to understanding the evolution um, that you're describing of, of the modern uh, conference. You, you tell the story of this uh, legendary meeting back in 1967 at a cafe in New Orleans where two men were very well known in, in Baptist circles, probably less well known you know, outside, uh, two men named Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler sat down and they mapped out how they wanted to unite, as you point out, you know, conservative Southern Baptists to take over uh, the convention. And this was, as you pointed out, you know, the conservative resurgence. Um, others thought of it as a fundamentalist takeover. But, you know, as, as you just described, you know, you were taught that, you know, this was this is how you were, you know, saved. The conference was saved from the heresies of liberals by the courage of these two men. But yeah. it turns out that these two guys are really inextricably, you know, wound up in what, you know, what had gone terribly wrong. So tell me about this. I mean, Patterson fired for mishandling a rape victim's report. 
making yes. comments? What happened to Patterson? There were videotaped comments about uh, the physical appearance of 16-year-old girls as sort of parenthetical sermon illustrations, and then added to the mishandling of of, uh, of some of these things, he was fired. The other uh, figure um, is uh, is now in a, a civil trial over accusations of um, of uh, sexual assault. He's Paul um, Pressler, right? Paul Pressler, yes. And so he's you know that's all alleged. I mean, it's it's still in court right now. But the the fact is that uh, here, here you have a situation where for a lot of people. These were sort of the the Martin Luthers of uh, of of the the current time period in our part of the world, and so to see this, it really has a a rattling sort of effect because what you do is you you look back and you say, well, then what was I doing all that time, and and, and what then was real and and what was an illusion, and so I I I tell people all the time, I am just really glad that I was a Christian for as long uh, before I sort of went behind these uh, behind these walls to see some of these things. I can tell the difference between Jesus and, and this stuff, but a lot of people can't. And hmm. so you have a, a rattling of people's faith in ways that it, it's disturbing to me when I see young people who are are saying I'm just walking away from the faith, not because they say, "Oh, I listen to Richard Dawkins and I believe him," or "I don't want to abide by the moral rules of the church." You know that stuff always happens. But when they say, "I just don't even believe this is real," in terms of actually morally real, I mean that is a that is heartbreaking and a and a crisis and and could be avoided. You know, in in one of the recordings that was made. Um, which I didn't even remember uh, until I, I saw the recordings. I didn't know what were happening. Uh, I said to one of these figures, uh, because he was saying to me, you can't raise these issues in public because we've got to protect the base. Good. And the base doesn't like this, and we've got to protect the base. And and I, I just said, stop doing stupid stuff. And now that I look back on that, I say that actually was so uh, understated. <laughs> because so so much of this isn't stupid stuff. It's just wicked uh, and self-evidently wicked. I, I think that that's, uh, that's just throwing a lot of people right now. So let's talk about this culture, the rot in the culture that you describe. And I want to go into that, but let's do that right after this. Have you ever heard of data brokers? They're the middlemen who are collecting and selling all of those digital footprints you leave online. They can stitch together detailed profiles, which include your browsing history, online searches, and location data. And then they sell your profile off to a company who delivers you a targeted ad. Now, no biggie, right? Well, you might be surprised to learn that these same data brokers are also selling your information to the Department of Homeland Security and the IRS. Look, I personally uh, don't want the tax man showing up at my door because of some search I did on my phone. So to mask my digital footprints, I protect myself with ExpressVPN. One of the easiest ways for brokers to aggregate data and tie it back to you is through your device's unique IP address, which also reveals lots of information about your location. When you're connected to ExpressVPN, your IP address is hidden. That makes it much more difficult for data brokers to identify who you are. 
ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of network traffic to keep your data safe from hackers on public Wi-Fi. That's why I have the ExpressVPN app downloaded on all of my devices, phone, computer, even my home Wi-Fi router. All I do is tap one button to turn it on, and I'm protected. It's that easy. So to make sure your online activity and data is protected with the best VPN money can buy, visit expressvpn.com slash right now and get three extra months free through my special link. That's expressvpn.com slash bulwark, expressvpn.com slash bulwark to learn more. We are back with Dr. Russell Moore, who wrote a really extraordinary piece in Christianity Today last week about sex abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, saying it is not just a crisis, it is an apocalypse. And, and you called out the rot in the culture, the same culture that exiles churches that call a woman on staff a pastor, but and, and that treats women wearing leggings as a social media crisis but thinks that rape in the church is a distraction. I thought that was, that was well put. It's like you get upset about this, but then you have these horrific examples of abuse, and that's a distraction. That is what is the threat to the mission. Yeah, and it's uh, often with these sort of mafia tactics. I mean, there, there was a, a figure in Southern Baptist life who was really revered and sort of the, lo the lore about him is that if he if you got out of his favor he would send you flowers and if you if you receive these flowers that would mean you're 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 no longer in the good graces with this uh with this leader Jeez. and i i remember the first time i heard someone talking about this and thinking this sounds like the mafia to me this doesn't <laughs> sound like the jesus loving southern baptist church that that i grew up in and that i've known uh ever since and there really is, usually not in that uh, cartoonish a way, but there really is often in these institutions a sense of not we're going to um, we're going to exile you immediately. Think about Tim Alberta's piece mm -hmm. from a couple of weeks ago about these things right. that are going on in churches. The radicalization. Yeah. Often what happens is for the pastors who are under siege there. It's not the immediate issue. It's a group of people who sort of step back and wait. They don't say anything about what they're really angry about, but they wait until they can find something else and then just project all of their tactics on that. And so you can end up with a situation in, I really believe this, most people in the Southern Baptist Convention are good people who, who really do want to serve the Lord. But it only takes a small group of people to completely control uh, the, the agenda of what's being talked about. And that can happen congregation by congregation by congregation. You may say, well, it's only 10 percent of the people uh, in, in my church. And yet, I mean, you just look at the CRT. Uh, I mean, there's CRT yeah. controversies everywhere, but it, we were having them in the SBC a full two years before uh, the rest of the country. And I'm, I'm not a critical race theorist mm -hmm. at, at all, but, and as a matter of fact, I couldn't find a critical race theorist. It would be easier for me to find a Southern Baptist vegan at a men's prayer breakfast than it would uh, for me to be able to find a critical race theorist. But you had people who 
uh, all they were doing is saying, look, here's what the Bible teaches about justice. Here are the very real problems we have with race. Here's how we ought to, to bear the burdens of, um, of our African-American and, and other fellow Christians. And that is labeled as CRT. Uh, and so what happens is then you have people, they don't want to defend CRT. They don't believe in CRT, but they have to constantly be dealing with the accusation, oh, well, you're a, you're a critical race theorist. And then when, when the other people just sort of step back and say, if we just denounce this non-existent, in our context, CRT, loudly enough, then that will settle this group down and then we can move forward. But that's not, that, that doesn't happen. And no, so there's just a constant defeated. demand for more and more. So, you know, and, and the, the, the way in which survivors and dissenters are treated, uh, I want to talk about that because, and let's just talk about the abuse survivors, the report documents, how the arguments were used that, that these people who were coming forward were quote unquote professional victims, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that, that, that if you stood by them, you would be a tool of the devil to distract from the mission. So part of it was kind of demonizing the victims themselves and then anyone that would speak up in, in the way that you just described, correct? Yes. And also uh, this sense of, well, this is the culture. The, the, the Me Too movement is, uh, is the culture. And if you have this understanding that the culture is completely rotten on the outside, um, then, well, this is a, this is a fad or, or maybe it's something more dangerous than that. It's some sort of a feminist agenda. And so therefore we shouldn't pay attention to it, uh, which is just mind boggling because, because I think uh, in what universe is it inconsistent to follow Jesus and to protect, uh, the very people he told us to protect? It, it, it just doesn't make sense, but that is for a lot of people the, the mindset that they have. If this sort of thing is it's pro, if professional victim that comes up a lot, victim ink, uh, mm. or just the sense of well we're all uh, we're all sort of uh, absorbing and playing to the culture uh, on the outside. So and you're right. The people who stepped out of line were labeled liberals, Marxists, or feminists. And of course, uh, you, you've taken a lot of brickbats over the years. So one of the stories you recount in the article is, is that when you and your wife stepped out of the last uh, Southern Baptist Convention executive committee meeting that they would ever attend, she told you that if you remained a Southern Baptist, they, you would have an interfaith marriage yeah, because yeah. she'd seen enough she'd and so had that. you. So what, what happened at that meeting that did cause that? We brought my uh, then 15-year-old son uh, with me because he had asked my wife, he said, look, I can handle this. Just tell me, has dad had some sort of moral failure or stolen money or something like mm. that? And so I said, I want you to come with me. So I want you to hear all of it and then you'll know. And so he did. And um, we sat through all of it and then we walked out. And I all, said, what All, all of what? what? What What happened? So well, were you on trial? Was yes, this, yes, it was. It was, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a trial, I guess you would call it. Um, and so when we walked out, I said, "What did you think?" And he said, "Well, he said I feel a lot better about you than I did before uh, hearing <laughs> all that." But my question is, why do we want to be a part of this? He said, "Dad, that was so angry and it was so disorganized. Uh, why do we want to be a part of this?" 
And that was a really difficult moment. And my wife, who does not give ultimatums, I don't think I've ever heard her, her give one before, uh, said that. She said, you know, you can do what you want. Because she knew I have such a loyalty, had such a loyalty to Southern Baptists that it left to myself. I would have stayed there until, if necessary, I was the last one to turn off the last water heater for the last baptistry. Um, she knew that. And so she knew it would take a lot for me to leave. But we were at the point where I just said, I can't stay and figure out how to keep my ordination vows. So I was thinking about this, and I don't want to wallow in this, but you know, when, when I wrote my book, How the Right Lost Its Mind, back in 20, 2016, 2017, I basically devoted an entire chapter to you because it was so rare for a prominent evangelical leader to resist the push to get on board the Trump train. And you were very, very outspoken about that. And yet you managed to hang on for three or four years. It must have been brutal. I mean, at what point does this other issue become the breaking point? There seems to be kind of this stew of the politics, the radicalization, the attitude towards sex abuse. You were able to hang on for a long time and then it became intolerable. So can you describe that breaking point? It wasn't just hang on, because when you think about the way the Southern Maps Convention is, is governed is with a big annual meeting where churches send people to make decisions. I never received anything from them that was not encouragement, affirmation, cooperation. Uh, I, I would walk away from that meeting every year feeling re-energized. And my board was great. I had uh, nothing but support and encouragement from my board the entire time that I was there. So it wasn't a situation where most people, including most Trump voters, I mean, I had uh, countless people who disagreed with me on Trump and would say I voted for Trump. But, you know, I, I understand why you why you don't. But it was a, a smaller group who are willing to do anything. I mean, that's why. In a lot of these institutions, things are really mismatched because even if you have the majority of people who are willing to bear with some difference and cooperate together, that smaller group often is willing to use whatever psychological or other uh, tactics they can get. And the majority, they just don't understand that because they think, you know, I wouldn't do anything like that. And so if we just sort of let these people get it through their system, then everything will be fine. And, and then there are a lot of other people is really similar to the political scene. There are a lot of people who are scared, uh, who are in some uh, position of leadership, who are just sort of um, saying, well, I have to I have to kind of uh, look around and see who should I be standing next to and not standing next to and what should I say and, and not say. And a lot of times in church life, it's exactly like it is, say, in Congress. You have people saying, well, I'm going to go along with this for now. But eventually the fever will break and then everything will go back to normal. But I have to be at the table when things go back to normal in order to lead it. And that means right now. I have to give them what they want. And there was a, a, someone who said to me in 2016, right after the election, there was a group of people who were, you know, went to the Wall Street Journal to say they were going to try to defund me and have me fired. And this person said to me, well, you've got to play the game the right way. And that is you give them 95% red meat 
that they want. And then you can deal with the 5% that you want to do. And my response was to say, I didn't know we were playing a game. (laughs) That's what's news to me. So give me your sense of the trajectory here, because obviously you you have this process of radicalization, in some cases, extreme radicalization. Um, I'm thinking of Tim Alberta's piece. Mm-hmm. It happened over a long period of time, happened gradually, and then felt like it happened all at once. He thinks that the pandemic and the shutdown accelerated a lot of things that were going on. You saw this from the inside. So give me your sense of sort of the historical roadmap, how we got to this point. Because for me, and one of the reasons I was so interested in what you were saying back in 2016 was it was, it came as a genuine shock to me as an outsider to watch how, um, you know, evangelical Christians went from the demographic group that was most interested in the relationship of private virtue to public figures, thought it was the most important issue, to the demographic group most willing to say that, that, you know, virtue character did not matter. When it came to politics, it felt like a, just a complete reversal. But obviously, this was coming for some time. So give me your sense of, was there a turning point? Was it a gradual boil? How did it play out? Well, I, I think about uh, one key moment uh, for me uh, was the, and I, I suppose it was about 2010, Glenn Beck had a, uh, a big yeah. event uh, on the mall, the Restoring Honor, I think it was called, yeah. and uh, had the black-robed regiment of uh, pastors and ministers who were going to uh, stand with him. And I was noticing so many evangelical Christians saying, isn't it refreshing to hear Glenn Beck preaching the gospel? And I was sitting here watching this. There was no gospel in, <laughs> in this at all. Uh, it, it was just culture war politics. And I started to realize, I think there are some people who can't tell the difference between these two things. And because politics just energizes uh, people, it gives you a feeling of sort of life. And if there's lifelessness in other areas, it can really give you a, a jolt. And that becomes much more immediate to people than, say, character, virtue, forgiveness of sins. And so it becomes it becomes the animating factor. And then it goes from there. And so there's a sense of catastrophism, yeah. which is there are many people who will say, oh, well, private virtue related to, to public justice. That was true for a long time, but not in times like these. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And therefore, that's that's what we have to do. So you, you have this sense of the culture is always right about to fall apart, which isn't a Christian view. I mean, a, a Christian view is uh, the culture is always fallen uh, from, from Eden forward. There's always going to be common grace and, and goodness out there in the culture, and there's always going to be fallenness. But this sense of everything out there is bad and everything in here by definition. And I think of Willie Morris, old uh, Mississippi author, who was uh, talking about people in Yazoo City, Mississippi, where he's from, about the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And he said it wasn't so much that they were pro-war. It was that they were anti the people who were protesting. The war. Boy, do I understand that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. that made them more and more uh, pro-war. I think a similar dynamic often is at work. Many people assume, well, it's the pastors because they see some of these buffoonish uh, figures you know, on, on television. That's not the case. In most cases, the pastors are actually good, reasonable people who are hanging on into some really difficult uh, situations, dealing with people 
uh, in their congregations. And COVID just accelerated that because people were disconnected from one another and it it sort of put everybody under stress. So it took already existing realities and just knocked them through the roof. It, it's that sense that the church is always under siege. And there were legitimate concerns about religious freedom and conscience yeah. clause. But as you pointed out, and I, and I think very powerfully, and again, this goes back to 2016, 2017, that you know, religious freedom is very, very important, but it is at a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And if you lose the the sense of, okay, the end is the gospel and the Christian faith. You don't sacrifice all of that simply, you know, to 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 fight off the, you know, to fight the culture wars. And I think that balance feels like it's been lost. Yes, and it, to some degree that has that has always been in there. I mean, I, I was a teenager uh, in the eighties. Um, in, in some of our classes, they would be playing uh, records backwards to show us how there were secret hidden messages and. Uh, you know, eventually you realize uh, this isn't actually an accurate portrayal of, of the culture, but there was so much uh, other there. But when that becomes the, the real animating factor and when it starts to, it looks like conviction. And that's in Alberta's uh, piece, mm. he talks about the, the growth that can happen. I've seen this happen uh, a thousand times where you have a church that grew really fast during covid because the pastor is talking about Bill Gates's conspiracies and, and, and so forth, that can grow. A lot of people will come for that in the same way that, say, in the 80s, a lot of people would come to these, these churches that were tying biblical prophecy uh, to current events and to the Cold War. I can tell you what the Soviet Union is going to do and why Mikhail Gorbachev is the Antichrist and so forth. People would flood into that. Now people will flood in in some places for that sort of thing because it looks like conviction. So someone's someone's angry and and, and riled up. It looks like well, that's a fighter, and so people are drawn to that. So the pastors who are actually doing the work of Christ-like ministry, uh, that's what some of them are up against. So what is the reaction? You 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 mentioned things coming as a jolt. Uh, this report should have been um, a rather dramatic jolt for the Southern Baptist Convention. What is the fallout? What's going to happen? I noticed that you tweeted just a few days ago that Paige Patterson, uh, who is who was fired for his his comments, um, you may, we talked about him earlier. That, that Paige Patterson was scheduled to be a pulpit guest at the First Baptist uh, First Baptist uh, Dallas. This yeah. past Sunday, a week after this yeah. report was released, and you said you were thunderstruck, absolutely yeah, inexcusable and enraging. But what does that tell you? It, it, it certainly tells me that there are some people that are not reacting the way that, that you reacted to this report. Well, that that's true, but I don't think that that's the majority of people. And so, I mean, the, the encouraging thing to me is how this investigation even happened, which was because grassroots Southern Baptists came to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting and demanded it happen uh, over and against a lot of these leaders who were saying, you can't do this. So that's why it exists. So I really do have the sense that they they are taking it seriously and will do the right thing. But there is a subset that even now will say this is just part of the liberalization of the Southern Baptist Convention. It just astounds me that saying rape and molestation is wrong somehow indicates liberalization. But there is a group that will say that, but I don't think they're going to win the day. 
Okay, so there, there are like more than 700 cases that are documented here. And, you know, you were rebuked for calling this a crisis at one point, but but now we know that the leaders knew that there was a crisis. They were documenting it themselves. Um, you were right. When I read the back and forth between some of these presidents, high-ranking staff, and their lawyers, I cannot help but wonder what else this can be called but a criminal conspiracy. So are those people still in office? Are they still in their positions? Do they still run the convention? Most of them are not, but most of them are not uh, sort of after this investigation was commissioned. Uh, there, there were a lot of uh, resignations and retirements uh, that, that happened after the investigation was commissioned. And, uh, and, and so that's the case. And, and it's just also the case, and this is, this is a tragic thing. I mean, 1.1 million of us have, uh, have left uh, the Southern Baptist Convention over the last uh, three years. 1.1 million? Yes. Have left? Have left. Uh, that, that's okay. been the decline. And, and I think for most people, um, I know uh, Beth Moore, uh, not relation, but right. good friend. Uh, she and I both uh, left around the same time. And I think it's unusual that a day goes by that we're not nostalgically reminiscing about our Southern Baptist childhoods and so forth. So these aren't people who wanted to leave, I don't think. And so it, it really does need to be addressed because a lot of people are exhausted at the politics, the infighting. And this sort of thing, where you have this majoring on these really minor issues while sweeping aside something that is huge, the abuse of, of vulnerable people. I and mean, that's huge. And that's swept aside while really, really minor uh, issues are argued about constantly and heresy trials are happening over those things. So where did the million go? Some of it is just the, the general uh, loss of church membership in American life. You, you look at the rise of the no religious uh, affiliation, the nuns uh, people. A lot of them went to sort of uh, non-denominational uh, Bible churches or to other denominations. Uh, it, it's a variety of different places. And then there are people, I hear from people all the time, who don't go to church and who desperately want to but they've been hurt so badly that they don't know how to trust another congregation. And that, that to me is both heartbreaking and enraging at the people who would allow that situation to become what it has. I think it was Peter Weiner who uh, pointed out that no atheist has done as much to pry people away from the faith as uh, these bad actors within the church themselves. Exactly. This is over a sweep of 20 years over the past 25 years, I mean, one of the, the big things that the Southern Baptist Convention did was to boycott Disney because <laughs> Disney was tearing apart family values. And so we were going to take Disney down with this boycott. And then three years later, it was just sort of quietly abandoned because it hadn't done anything. It hadn't stopped any Southern Baptist from going to Disney World. But now you look back and you say, OK, the real cultural threat to our witness and to our churches was right there. Right there. It's, it's on the inside. Dr. Russell Moore, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, this has been an extraordinary discussion. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.